0: Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Tom Reed wilson Tom's an actor, singer, poet and lyricist who trained at the Royal Academy of Music and is best known for his appearances on E4's Celebs' Go Dating. Tom's also been a dating guru for Roman Kemp's Capital Radio Breakfast Show. Originally from Berkshire, Tom now lives in London. Due to the circumstances we all find ourselves in, I'm talking with Tom today via a video call. Tom Reed Wilson, welcome to the Marikiri couch.
1: Oh, it's lovely to be here. What a comfy virtual couch it is.
0: Are you okay if I start today, Tom, by asking you if you've had a significant death in your life?
1: Yes, and indeed I have. There are two that struck me in the solar plexus, as it were. They really, really moved me to the very core. And the first one was the death of my great-grandmother, and her name was Ailsa. And I was very close to her and it was a curious thing because um, in a way I had three grandmothers because there was a 16 year age gap between my dad and my mom, my dad being 16 years older. And I think on their second Christmas together, my maternal great-grandmother and my paternal grandmother were both there and they realized having settled in wildly different pockets of the UK that they were in the same year at Putney High School. And this whole generation had been sort of fanned out, augmented by this age gap between my parents. And so they were exact contemporaries. And it meant, as I say, that really I had three grandmothers and I was terribly close to her. And um, in her declining years, every Saturday, I was supposed to be at school, but I wasn't wild about games. So I would slip away and I would play Scrabble with her. And we had a ball and she had an undetected broken hip. She had arthritis and um, her doctor thought the arthritis had just become very advanced, but she'd actually had a fall and broken her hip and eventually she had to go and have it reset, which at her age then, 86, was a big operation. And she never really recovered from that and uh, declined very quickly after that. And it really was the first death in my family that made me think about mortality because The other ones, I had been knee high to a grasshopper, you know, and, and suddenly I was 12 and I was confronted with it. And I went to my first funeral. I was the only one of my siblings considered old enough to go and allowed to go. And I suddenly was confronted with all these things of, well, where's she gone? What's happened? Does life simply end? And then that became a very harrowing and alarming thought to me for a long period because I thought, well, I'm not sure if I believe in an afterlife. So, if it's nothingness, is one aware of nothingness? Because, of course, it's the ultimate unknown, isn't it? And we can't think of nothingness without imagining nothingness, imagining a kind of void. And, of course, that's the scariest thing in the world, being aware of a void. But, of course, you wouldn't be aware. But that's totally beyond our comprehension and was way beyond my adolescent comprehension so that was the first time it really struck me.
0: Going back Tom to when she died and you said you attended the funeral you were allowed to go what kind of conversations do you remember about death or even dying beforehand you know around you family or her friends?
1: Well it was a funny day my family are very good at employing humour at funerals And um, especially if it's a very elderly relative. And uh, it was a very busy crematorium, I remember. And it was a wonderfully clement day. And we arrived and this host of hell's angels came through into the crematorium. And my uncle said, (laughs) I didn't realize that Ailsa was a hell's angel. (laughs) And it seemed like they had all arrived for her for this kind of pearled sort of tweed elderly lady. It was the most wildly incongruous sight and it really, really tickled me. We do, I think um, my family weaponized humor a lot in those kind of situations. And I remember sort of suddenly being aware of what a tool it was, what a conscious tool it was because my knee jerk reaction was Sure you can't make a joke here, yeah. you know, because it was my very first funeral and it, it seemed awfully grave to me. And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> that humour's rather macabre. And then I sort of thought, Oh, actually maybe that's the best possible way.
0: Do you remember where you were when you got the news? Who told you that she died?
1: Yes, my mum told me, and the funeral was Arranged within a week. And you know, the funny thing was, I had almost an allergy to crying at that point in my very early teenage years. I'd been able to cry absolutely like a tap at school, and I used it to great advantage at primary school. And then I thought it was a kind of punishment that my tear ducts had a cork in them suddenly, you know, and I couldn't do it anymore. And I had this amazing cathartic release there. And I had a kind of strange epiphany about funerals that stayed with me ever since, because lots of my relatives, I saw cry for the very first time. And I thought, this is the wonderful thing about a funeral. We're all facing forward. We're not regarding one another. And we're supposed to be one unified body. Even when we sing, we sing as one unified body. We're not aware of any individual. And that sort of countenance forward, uh, no peripheral vision even really, uh, allows one to feel liberated in their grief and allows one to have that catharsis in communion. And it's a strange, strange dichotomy of being in communion and being liberated that way but also feeling utterly a solo enterprise because you're not regarding anybody else's face, except perhaps whoever's giving a sermon or a eulogy or whatever it might be. So it's curiously liberating and therefore very cathartic.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Just going back, you used the word harrowing to describe maybe weeks or months or years afterwards. Was that your grief you were talking about, Tom?
1: Do you know, this sounds awfully selfish but no it wasn't really my grief because I'd seen her battle, a long battle with pain and she had a lot of morphine at the end. And um, I saw her death as an enormous release and I saw a really visible release in my relatives who had been caring for her too. Um, The harrowing thing at that stage with that particular death was the sudden thought of death. Because she meant so much to me, I started to think about what she experienced transitioning from life, which I knew, to death, which was the ultimate unknown. And I had never even considered it, I don't think. Before that moment, the psychology of death and the phenomenon of death Death was just a thing, you know, it was just a thing in books and films where your focus was instantly on those that were present surrounding the death and not on the deceased. Suddenly, all my thoughts were consumed by the deceased and their experience transitioning, whether it even was a transition. I mean, that's kind of the point in a way is that one thinks automatically in terms of transition it's probably not it's probably a full stop and that's the thing that i found harrowing
0: and trying to find meaning or understanding in it you know that that focus on well what happens now
1: yes and i think that that hit me much much more with the second major death that really really hit me which was my uncle who um, who took his own life, and it was a completely different kind of death. you know it was he was forty seven and uh, he was a brilliant and fun and witty, and he was actually the person that made that joke about the hell's angels at we call her Gan, my Gan's funeral and That's what he was like, you know, this sort of razor sharp, dry wit that made everybody cry with laughter. And that was when the death, rather than the concept of death, became the most harrowing thing,
0: you know, because
1: everything about it felt wrong.
0: When was that?
1: That was probably six years ago, maybe seven.
0: So that sudden unexpected death. Yes. Have you told you about that? I mean, I you told that he died, Tom? Well, that
1: I remember so vividly. I had visited my godchildren in Muswell Hill, and I always cycled out to see them, which all the way from Stockwell in those days. So it was a pretty tough cycle. And then my reward would be practically freewheeling all the way back. and whenever I visited them I kind of banished my phone to the bottom of my bag um, so that I could be totally invested and as I was cycling home I was aware of my bag sort of furiously oscillating against my back and I pulled it out and there was something staggering like 17 missed calls from my mum and I thought oh my god this must be very serious and I locked up my bike and I stood there and there were tons of people around and again it was a very sunny day and she told me and you know I was absolutely distraught distraught and and you were on your own
0: in the middle of a busy street
1: in the middle of a very very busy pavement yeah and um still talking to her so I was sort of not able to be comforted or, or, or anything like that by anybody around because we were still trying to kind of muddle through some form of conversation. I mean, that changed all of our lives forever,
0: undoubtedly. Can you tell us in what ways, Tom, that changed your life?
1: He was one of those figures in a family around whom so much seemed to orbit, you know, and you knew that every subsequent family occasion would have a completely different hue for his absence. Um, He was such a kind of literally pivotal figure. He was like a kind of a fulcrum. And then retrospectively you thought about moments where there was a kind of a remoteness or a retreat. Um, I had just done a play in Dubai and I spent my first ever Christmas away from home. And very sweetly, my family, including him, Uncle Pete, assembled a kind of a makeshift late Christmas for me in early January. And everybody came to my mum's house and my stepdad's house at that time. And we had a mini Christmas. And I'd never seen him like that. That was the last time I saw him. And um, he, was, he was remote and he couldn't be tickled. And his eyes weren't sparkling, they were sort of glazed over. And he was like a sort of a, a specter. And it was so not like him, and uh, and as I say, that was the very last time. And with hindsight, it seems like it was almost an irreversible retreat because he retreated so far into the darkest caverns of his mind, you know, where the torment was, and. I think that's what's so sad is that, you know, he was so loved and it was such a brilliant marriage, you know, with my aunt. I always say in relationships because um, because of my work, I'm asked about relationships a lot. And um, I always say that apart from love, um, I always say the two metric tests of a great relationship, I think in the ones I've observed, are parity and humor and i don't mean superficial economic parity or anything like that i mean real social parity two equals with enormous mutual respect communicating and allowing each other's voice to be heard and and then often at the apotheosis of a row fawning about laughing which is what they had and it's what my maternal grandparents had and i was very lucky to see that, and I think it's what the parents of my godchildren have too. And they had that, and so every aspect seemed so desperate. And I don't know, I don't think I was a tremendous help either afterwards. I I think I was very self-conscious in approaching
0: grief. What do you mean, not a tremendous help?
1: I think I was too wary of other people's grief of my cousin's grief and of my aunt's grief. Um, She was staggering. She was unbelievable. She was almost too altruistic because her instant, instant focus was how do I convey this to my children? You know, Um, but she is so generous of spirit. It's so typically, typically her. And in a way, I think that was, a coping mechanism too,
0: you know. And it's so difficult, you know, I think for people listening who are grieving right now in, in a family where they've had a significant loss, then it can be really tough trying to support each other as well because everybody's grief is unique to them because the relationship they had with the person who's died was unique to them.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And... There is no set of rules. I think all one can do really is be candid about how lost in the quagmire of grief we are. So if you say, what do you need from me? What can I provide if anything at this juncture? Rather than going to your own arsenal and saying to yourself, maybe I'll try hugging them. Maybe I'll try giving them their space. Maybe I'll try distracting them. I think people know it's the one thing that they're left knowing is what they what they require. If they need bolstering, if they need distraction, if they need energy, if they need calm, you know. So if you say to somebody in that position, you tell me, this is your carte blanche. There's no judgment here. There's no... Um, metric test for how you're doing the pace of recovery there's nothing there's just you and me and your ability to request from me what you need right now do you need somebody else in the house do you need space do you need entertainment
0: what is it what helped you tom after your uncle died and or still helps you now
1: talking i think enormously and Uh, I have a wonderful therapist and that is very helpful. I I mean, I'm very, very fortunate in that regard that I have access to somebody because I know that waiting times can be horribly long for, for things like that. But I do think that discourse is so important. And actually, that's one reason I so love working with Marie Curie because you're such huge advocates of opening the discourse surrounding death. And uh, I wrote a poem about it, about the use of euphemism. And it is funny, it's, it's amazing how rich a pageant of euphemism we have for death, compared to other countries even, uh, catching in one's chips, kicking the bucket, popping your clogs, breathing your last. I mean, it's absolutely endless.
0: I like your filling the church.
1: Oh, darling, <laughs> you've heard my poem.
0: Yeah, of course I did. Of course I did. It was great.
1: Oh, I'm so filled. That's Chopin to my tympanic membrane, that is. But um, I think if that's a useful springboard, then I think that is still valid.
0: None of us know what's around the corner. But we believe planning and preparing now for end of life makes life better at the end. Marie Curie is here to help. For more information on how to have an open conversation around death and dying, visit mariecurieorguk forward slash talkabout and help make life better at the end.
1: It is interesting if you look sociopolitically, if you look at times in our history where death was ubiquitous and very, very visible. There were no curtains shrouding it or even kind of uh, extensive undertakers, you know, in times of plague and whatever it might be. The lexicon surrounding death was much, much more direct.
0: You just got me thinking about, you know, how death now seen sort of medical discourse around it so it's seen as you know something to be managed in hospital or to be hidden away yes and you know you get you gave a couple of great examples there of just when death used to be part of the community it happened in the community the local carpenter was a bloke who made the coffin. yes you know and kind of the you know, bodies would be kept in houses and services in local halls and villages Um, and, And everybody in the community was involved in it and it was very visible.
1: You're absolutely right. I'd never thought of that, but you're right in a kind of, in that sort of microcosmic fashion that villages and towns operated. And every, I imagine that most people in a community like that would have known each other too.
0: So I wonder how that then impacts on or impacted on their grief and bereavement going back to you talking earlier about the collective, if it was more open and it was more visible, I can assume maybe grief and bereavement was also more open.
1: Yes, and the curious thing now where people feel somewhat robbed of their grief, those that weren't able to attend those very, very pared down funerals of family members that died at the zenith of the virus, The comfort and the sucker seems to come from that universality of being robbed. So it's like through the press and through virtual communication and actually through outlets like this, one realizes that discourse is the way to combat that inability to have the kind of communion catharsis that I was talking about earlier, which I do think is so vital. Although, interestingly, where death is concerned in my family, it's often said that that period after the funeral is the most difficult because everything seems to be building up. It seems to be a great crescendo to that moment of ultimate catharsis. And then you're lonely, you know, and then the absence hits you. And that's when people seem to kind of... Melt away a little bit. One of my best friends, her father died very suddenly of a heart attack a couple of years ago. And I was filming on the day of the funeral and I couldn't go. And I said, I'm so sorry I can't come. And she said, Do you know what would be so much more valuable to my mom actually would be if in two weeks you sent a bunch of flowers because that's what she's worried about. She's worried about. Two weeks, three weeks, a month from now, you know, not actually about the funeral.
0: And I think when, as you describe that kind of run up to the funeral, can often be a very busy time, can be a very numb time. Yes. People describe feeling quite robotic. But then after the funeral, when you're still in the sort of depths of death, and everybody else goes back to their lives, but you can't just yet, then yeah, where does that leave you? And it doesn't leave, sometimes doesn't leave you in a very nice place.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. It's when people can feel marooned suddenly, marooned in their grief, which is just excruciating.
0: But I think, as you were just describing there as well, what you you know what um, they said about sending flowers two weeks later, those kind of things can be a great help. You know, link in later on two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, sending a text, sending a note, writing a letter, thinking about you. I'm here. I know your loss hasn't gone away.
1: You know, it's so interesting that your symbol is a daffodil because. Flowers are so powerful. Um, I remember Iris Murdoch seeing something wonderful. She said, if a Martian came to earth, they'd think that the human race would be giddy with delight the whole time to be surrounded by such magical things because you look at the whirl of a bloom and you could just look at it interminably. You could, I mean, especially something like a peony or my, they're so complex. And these sort of endless veins and arteries and myriad hues, I mean, just riotous. And it is amazing. I think it's no accident that funerals are always full of flowers, you know, everywhere. Even on top of the coffin, there are flowers. And I think that doing that says so much if you continually send bouquets to people to cheer them. And that sort of very real sense of something blossoming and emitting perfume around them. It's amazing how that impacts the soul.
0: Tom, just to move on a bit now, um, I'd like to ask you if you think about your own death?
1: Yes, well, that bereavement, that bereavement when I was 12 was the start of that. And, um, it is something I ruminate on rather too much, probably, and it's so funny because my parents couldn't be more different. You know, my dad is so funny. You know, if I talk to he's a sort of staunch atheist, and um, you talk to him about death, and he says, "Well, that's it. You know, that's the end. Boom. You know, gone. That's it." And then I always counter that by saying, "Yeah, but we don't know what that it means." That is the ultimate riddle to us. It's like the riddle of the Sphinx. You know, it's, it's so difficult to understand because we don't know nothingness. We don't comprehend nothingness. And he says, yeah, but we won't be comprehending it, will we? We're done. Gone. Boom. And I, he, he, we sort of end up in this sort of tug of war because um, he doesn't think there's anything to comprehend in lack of comprehension. And I think that that's a staggering phenomenon because that's what we can't know. And everything else, everything else that an unknown to us, we have a glimmer of. I mean, concepts like perfection, for example, that we don't know, we haven't witnessed on earth and, and never will... Um, something like a flower will give us a shade of it. It'll give us a notion of it, but we don't even have a notion of this. And I've had the same discussion with my mum, who in other ways is less aligned with my thinking. And she said to me, yes, that's exactly what baffles me and what makes it a recurring thought and what makes it creep into my nightmares and makes it the single most terrifying thing to me is that lack of comprehension and that darkest of all thoughts. Um, Are we going to be mindful of a nothingness, of an end? And um, that's the thing. That's the thing that gets my mind in a horrible knot. But of course we won't. I mean, the, the great thing is, of course we won't, we can't. You know, no grey cells will be dancing to ruminate on anything or, or, to, or to even digest anything. But that's the puzzlement for me. That's the, that's the missing piece because I don't know that. I've never experienced that.
0: I was interested to hear that you've had these conversations with your parents. So, so in our work at Marie Curie, we uh, encourage people to talk about their own deaths and death and dying. Um, and also to think about um, practical things like writing a will or planning a funeral or talking about what care they would want at the end of their life. Are there some things you've given thought to or talked about with your parents?
1: Well, um, not with my mum because my mum is um, a delicious ball of chaos. I don't know if she even has a will, but um, my dad is terribly, terribly pragmatic. And so if he does modify it or anything, we always will get a very kind of matter of fact bulletin. And it's the same with, with my maternal granny, funnily enough, she's ultra pragmatic. And so she's spoken openly about it, but funnily enough, my most recent conversation about wills was not with either of them it was with the parents of my godkids who said we're just about to modify our wills and um we want to entrust the children to you if anything happens and um we need your consent to that and i said yes i'd be thrilled and it was the most extraordinary thing because I was kind of deeply touched that they'd ask me. You know, they have relatives that could do it, but um, I, I was really, really moved by it. But I also sort of thought, but you're never going to die, you know? And there were umpteen reactions all kind of knit together. And it does make your brain frightfully busy because you start kind of, forecasting in myriad ways. It's really amazing. But then I think that maybe that's another reason why discourse is so important because these thoughts shouldn't be an assault, you know, on the brain. I mean, it's not something you want to discuss (laughs) all the time. It's not great dinner party chat, but it's certainly something that we could discuss at intervals with more candor And be less frightened of it. And I include myself in that. In fact, I had a conversation because I'm a big old greenie, Jason. And um, I was talking with my dear friend, who's my colleague on Celebs Go Dating, Paul Brunson. And he and I, our conversation really runs the gamut. And we have talked about death. And uh, I suddenly thought, do you know, it's quite important that I think as somebody that's very environmentally driven to think about how i'm buried so i decided that i would like a green burial where i'm sort of buried standing up so that i don't consume too much space and a tree is planted on top of me you know that it's a new kind of burial that's been devised to be as green as possible and to not give off any emissions when you die and I suddenly thought, actually, that's a rather lovely thought. That doesn't chill me at all.
0: You'd like to be buried and not cremated.
1: Yes, I think so. And that is the only reason. And most of my family were cremated and not buried. But, you know, I suppose I want what is left of my flesh to do as much good as it possibly can. (laughs) And if it fertilizes a tree's roots, And then that tree is sequestering CO2 in its lovely canopy, then dead me will be very, very happy. My hovering specter somewhere will say, Good for you, tree.
0: (laughs) I like that. It sounds great. it's a great idea. You know, you can put those wishes into your will as well. You can put those kind of basic funeral wishes into a will. So, of course, get it written down. And, you know, when you were talking earlier about friends asking you um, about their will and, Wanting to put you in there, and somebody to, to look after, care for their children um, when they die, and how it left you with that whole kind of mix of feelings and emotions, and it does, doesn't it? So, so I'm just kind of thinking that's why people might not want to talk about it, or might want to avoid those conversations, is just because it's overwhelming, or it can be overwhelming. Um, but I suppose what I would then say is give it a go, you know, have a try, test it out. Um, and once you start to talk about it, it might become less overwhelming, you know, and you might be able to make some plans support help each other.
1: Well, again, the parents of my godchildren, who are both best friends, are wizards of wit. So in one breath, they said this to me, and then they followed up with, you know, we're not planning to go anywhere. We're going skydiving next week. But, you know, other than that. <laughs> it's just like, and I think it can be such tonic and it's so useful. And I'm very lucky because I'm surrounded by people that verge on the macabre, as I say, with their humor. So nothing's, um, nothing's off limits. And I mean, death is very funny. It's very, very tragic, but it's also like anything that's really tragic in life. It's very funny because (laughs) it's going to happen to all of us. It's inescapable. And it's sort of a little bit ridiculous as well.
0: Just before we finish, Tom, today, and and honestly, I've so enjoyed this conversation. So, you know, thank you for being all.
1: Well, thank you. And and actually on that note, that is the petrol to my candor, if you like, is knowing that people are listening right now and, uh, and want to talk. And it's literally like turning the tap, you know, if you can, if it's stiff and you can turn it, then it's nice to let it proceed from you because, gosh, it's helpful, isn't it? It's so helpful. And in some cases, it's the only tonic you know.
0: My last question Tom is legacy something that's important to you as in how you'd like to be remembered?
1: Well people can come and visit my tree.
0: Yeah I was thinking that earlier when you were talking about the tree what a great place to sit under the shade.
1: Yes that would be very very nice and they can look up in the canopy and they can say oh that tit's come and sat on Tom's branch
0: or You
1: know, that's a very handsome oak leaf. I'd like a red oak because they have an especially big canopy, so they sequester a lot of carbon. I think it's a tonne by their 40th birthday, which is amazing, isn't it?
0: That's great. Tom Reed Wilson, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been heaven.
0: So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.